when I wears my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment. I will take vengeance upon mine enemies and I will repay those who hate me. O Lord, raise me to thy right hand and count me among thy saints. This episode of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast is all fair use, creative commons, license. I do not uh, post commercials on here. I do not generate revenue from this. This is just something that I put out for the community and for the edification of all listeners. So let's get into the episode. You are listening to Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. Expand your mind and keep it love. Yeah. 
Look, I grew up around a lot of dudes with malice So if niggas front, then I gotta do them damage My name rings, though I try to move in silence They know I'm so broken, I ain't gotta do the challenge Solidified, they don't question my validness I'm so Brooklyn, without hashtagging it And I ain't asking you to tag cats and fabulous I ain't with tagging dudes, I don't know, that's faggot shit Niggas telling me to jump on it Too many niggas sounding stupid like they drunk on it They say Philly took the beat and they crunching it and I heard some New York niggas had no business touching it I had to step in, had to rep the borough For every BK cat that kept it thorough For every Brooklyn night that put pain in Court cases never told, copped in arraignment I got you Hit the island with the razor booth Saw everything walking like a plate of food There was no one there to help you, no trade of truth You know Brooklyn shook them builders, niggas say the truth Any house I entered, I ran it fast Made that shit a Brooklyn house, Atlantic gas I ran dudes out, made them pack it fast I'm the reason they was hating your Hispanic ass All my niggas played the horse trying to find a victim to find a fix, they was kinda sick nah, It was go. 96, we was on some grimy shit No, you can't touch the phone, I got nine to click That's when the island was the island The phones were direct and you niggas wasn't dialing We was wildin', we was warring with the sangres We ate food every day, that need more hambre I really popped on my ops and the Rikers horse I went to travel my gang, I sacrificed it all Blew to a body that got me 20 to life and all Never saw a media, my nigga, I live behind a wall I'm so Brooklyn, so sunset. King nigga still banging like a drum set. So BK, so Biggie and J. Don't compare your city to mine, your city is gay. Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Non, Zagro. Et ton père, ton père m'a dit que tu savais jouer. Comme moi, je t'ai jamais entendu. Essaye de faire un petit truc pour que tu rentres dans mes, dans mes oreilles. Ça, 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 Que toute la vie 
Back again over here. This is episode 149, and uh, it's been a couple of weeks since I put out an episode, so just been wrapped up and tied up with all of this madness. And as I was going through organizing my stuff and just looking at different things I was doing, I really realizing to myself that you know this is a time of tremendous unemployment, downturn in the market. Uh, people are really getting hurt. But if you know anything about anything, really, you know that when you have times of tremendous depression and hurt and pain and everything like that, it's also balanced off on the other side of the yin and yang with opportunity, tremendous opportunity, equal and opposite to what's going on in front of you. The trick there is the timing because obviously the opportunities are going to come as the crisis start to settle, whatever crisis is going on at your time. Now, <clears throat> I don't have to say this is some of the most interesting times, possibly even in history, like, you know, up there when the Mongols are invading or whatever, because it's pretty much at that level right now what's going on. So, listening to a few different things on YouTube, listening to a few different podcasts, and just reflecting on the time that we're in right now and and how to best adjust for it. And again, I would dig down into my toolbox, as you know my toolbox I carry with me, my different skill sets, my belief systems, my teachings, my uh, my gut feelings on things, so thinking to myself, you know, fumbling through my uh, toolbox and I'm looking around to see what's in there and I'm realizing to myself that this, a time like this where everything is so unpredictable and there's such a void in place, you know the void is equal to the Tao or the Tao Te Ching. You know, yeah, the Buddhism is going gonna, is gonna to help you internally to purify yourself, to realize yourself, and, and, and to, you know, build on your own strengths, you know, and get more centered and everything like that with the Buddhism. But thinking about it real, real carefully, I said to myself, this is just the Tao and the unfolding of the Tao, as, as it were, the 10,000 things in verse 1 of the Tao. So... As a matter of fact, you know what, that's such an interesting point, I'm going to actually play that that first verse of the Tao, and I'll be right back to you. Correction, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to play the first 11 verses of the Tao Te Ching. One of the reasons I'm going to do it is back on episode 46 of this podcast, if you go to my website, alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com, or stick it in Google, you know, uh, Alpha, uh, Alpha Male Buddhist Podcast Tao Te Ching, you'll see like two episodes I think one is 26 and one is 40, uh, 46 
So I went back because the interpretation that I have of the Tao, it's an audio book that I have is read by this gentleman. I'm not sure of his name. I'll try to put it in the comments. But he does such uh, an exceptional reading of the Tao. It's the best reading I've ever heard. And he does an exceptional epilogue or, you know, commentary on the Tao, which I'm going to put at the end of this podcast. It runs, I'm not even sure, I think it runs for about 10 to 15 minutes. But it's, an, it's the best breakdown of the Tao that I've ever heard, just the way he puts it, expresses it, and phrases it. And I actually first really put my wrapped my head around this uh, commentary that he put out maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago on YouTube, and it really jarred my brain to some degree as far as my thinking and everything like that. He did such a great job. Now, here's the reason why I'm doing this. This, if you go on YouTube, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to find this interpretation and this reading, this audio book by this gentleman. Everyone else that has it, it's okay, but it's not like, it's not like Jordan with like, you know, four seconds on the clock left, you know, coming off the bench for you sports fans. So, even though I'm a Nick fan, um, used to be a Nick fan. So, this reading is so exceptional. There's a ch- huge chunk of meat in the first 11 verses of the Tao. Okay, and my favorite all time is Tao chapter 11, which is on the void. That's why I say void is infinite potential, which is windows and doors cut from a room and such. Learn to make use of what is by using that which isn't. So, he gets into the 10,000 things, and I'll just make some quick references on, on, on what's encapsulated in these first 11 verses. One is, uh, I forget what verse it is, but it says, better stop short than to fill to the brim. I mean, if I have to explain that to you, then you should rewind the Tao and go back to chapter 1 and start listening to it again. It's, it's, very, it's dark, as they say, darkness within darkness. So, darkness in the sense of... The, here's the thing with the Tao. <clears throat> which I kind of love and hate at the same time about it, that you will not see in any other religion. Every, or belief system, every other religion or belief system or philosophy, there's a code, like you read it, it, it can get tricky, except especially some of that Vedic stuff can get very tricky where you, where it's kind of hard, but you, you can reference it out, you can you can do your follow-ups and, you know, your word searches and, you know, and figure it out, but the Tao don't explain shit. But yet it, it explains everything. If that makes sense. But it, it won't hand it to you, <laughs> you know. It'll whisper it to you. It'll make suggestions to you. Um, so, but yeah, it, it's it's expecting you to connect the dots, and it's it's giving you all the dots, and it's giving you the opportunity to connect them. But you have to really put your work in with the Tao Te Ching. That's why it's so amazing, and and it's a double-edged thing because you have to put your work in, but yet it comes to you naturally. It depends on how it's unfolding, how the Tao's unfolding for you. So yeah, so that phrase, better stop short than fill to the brim. If you if you take a cup and fill it to the brim, there's nothing left in it. You know, and, and there's, there's... The essence of the Tao is the Tao... I, I guess you can use the word Tao is God, but it seeks balance in all things, okay? And it will work out balance in all things. It's not like, It's not like it's asking you or... It's a choice that you can choose one way or the other in that sense. The Tao is the Tao. Okay. Another phrase, uh, again, I f- I'm forgetting exactly what verses they're in, but it's that um, that the Tao seeks the lowest level and is comfortable where others are uncomfortable, like water. Uh, another 
another phrase again my favorite is 11 let me let me let me look back on this here hold on so the quote is over sharpen the blade and it will soon blunt in other words there's a point of diminishing returns for everything in nature in life and the sooner you learn that whole discipline and principle of point point of diminishing returns right that phrase point of diminishing returns the sooner you learn that the better you're going to and the sooner you're going to be able to understand the Tao and just everything around you and what of course I've explained it numerous times in the podcast but what the point of diminishing returns is is this mm. and I'll put it in terms of a race car because it, it makes the best analogy you have a race car you're, you're a gearhead kind of too loud here sorry so you're a gearhead and you want to have a really fast car so what do you do you you buy a car that's ten thousand dollars and that ten thousand dollar car will do a quarter mile in ten seconds ten thousand dollars that you pay for the car will do a quarter mile in ten seconds so it's a ten second car now if you want to take that same car and make it a nine second car you want to make it one second faster so you, you now do the quarter mile in nine seconds <clears throat> that ten thousand dollar car now becomes a twenty six thousand dollar car more almost triples in price because speed is very expensive so you have hit the point of diminishing returns right at 10 seconds and the money that you put in you're not going to get a return on for the most part right so in life you have to apply that point of diminishing returns with all things and that's part of like what the dog gets into so when you're sharpening that blade and it will soon blunt it's like you've reached the point of diminishing returns when it was sufficiently sharpened or whatever you had to do with it and that goes that applies to all things when you overkill something or overdo something it's no longer natural and you are out of balance in essence is the best way i can phrase it so yeah there's a number of things that i'd like to comment on and i might do that at the other run but it speaks the Tao speaks to everyone in a different way i'm gonna hear certain things out of the Tao that I'll explain to you and you say, what are you talking about? It's, it means this, because that's what it means to you. And that's the power of the Tao, because it it's like when you pour water, like Bruce Lee says, if you take water and pour it into a vessel, it becomes the vessel. It takes the shape of the vessel. And without struggling, it does it naturally, right? And that's what the Tao does. It gives you all of the tools that you need, but you're the one that's going to have to figure out how to connect those tools together and make it work. The explanation is there for you. And sometimes the best explanation is it's just avoided It's something that can't be explained. So instead of racking your head or trying to figure stuff out, you just you follow the doubt. You just let it go naturally. And at some point when it needs to be explained or it's pivotal, it's good, the doubt will provide that solution for you. So I'm, I'm, the doubt never ceases to amaze me. You know, and again, this reading of the Tao, it's on, if you go to my episode 46, you'll hear the whole reading. Again, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play these 11 chapters, these 11 verses rather. And then, uh, you know what, that might be it with the commentary right now. I just want to close out. And then I'm going to play the uh, epilogue, the uh, commentary at the far end of this. So at the end of the 11 verses, you're going to hear the commentary by the same gentleman. And we'll wrap it out for this. But again one of the main reasons i'm bringing this up is because 
the DAO is a tremendous tool that can be utilized at this point due to just the uncertainty that is going on all around us and, and just the confusion and, you know, it, the DAO can give you an ability to make an observation of the timing and the patterns of what's taking place right now so that you can make a determination on the strategy that you're going to employ, whatever it is that you, you're dealing with. But trust me, this is a time of tremendous concern but it's also and and suffering a time of tremendous suffering but it's also a time of tremendous opportunity so you have to really bear that in mind it's just the nature of the way it is it's the yin and yang of all things so i was listening to some commentary i listened to a youtube channel it's called quintessential mind and uh the guy's pretty amazing man his view on things and uh I kind of got inspired. I was watching his last episode where he's talking about uh, a number of different things as far as like Call Drawing the Shadow and a number of very interesting things. But one of the main things that he got into in the end of his last episode, which is 10 minutes, it's really short, but it's p- packed. He gets into how people, you know, fantasize and have this idea how they're going to do this one day and they're going to do this traveling and they're going to do all these tremendous, not just material things, but how they're going to manifest and maximize who they are and what they do and it just becomes a vicious cycle and a vicious dream but where they they dream and fantasize but they don't execute on not one thing and he gets into the details of that you might want to check him out on youtube i don't think he has a podcast it's quintessential mind yeah go over there and drop him some good comments and check him out because the guy the guy should have a whole lot more subscribers than he has i mean he's i consider him top top notch youtuber and content provider um, again, just because of his objective and the unique way that he views things, because in his last episode he kind of synchronizes and explains how. Um, let me let me take a poke in the hole. One second. So quintessential mind. He gets into this writer Richard Feynman, philosopher Richard Feynman, and the quote is: "Anything can become interesting if you look into it deeply enough." I mean, that's that's some pretty profound shit. So what I'm going to do here is play a quick little, short little clip from the YouTuber quintessential mind and then i'm gonna play out the uh, first 11 verses of the Tao with the the commentary from the same gentleman on youtube and that'll wrap it up so let's uh yeah let's get to it there is a mental model called inversion according to inversion when we face a daunting conundrum the most pertinent course of action is to think backwards namely by going back to the fundamentals of the issue and trying to deconstruct its main constituents, we end up increasing the chances of solving it, or at least decreasing the chances of allowing it to inflict misery upon us. Inversion, despite its very useful nature, is an arcane term for most people. Most people ignore inversion and they do so in a very irresponsible fashion. They firmly believe that the best way to solve a problem is just by capitalizing on conventional wisdom and preconceived notions. They cling to safe patterns that they feel accustomed to and they repeat these patterns perpetually without questioning or without the willingness to test something more innovative. The origins of this behavior are multifarious. For starters, we have the path of least resistance. This has its origins in physics where it is used as a heuristic that describes the approximation of the tendency to the least energy state. In colloquial language, we use it to allude to the proclivity of humans to avoid personal effort or confrontation. Then we have the notions of ego and identity. 
when a person is faced with a situation that challenges the essence of their identity, that is the substrate of their belief system, the mere thought of challenging this belief system convulses the backbone of their being. Finally, we need to deal with the unbearable struggle entailed in every aspect of the fabric of the societies we have created. Humans weren't ready to face the ramifications of being primal beings in technologically evolved worlds. Despite the fact that living conditions keep improving and wellness indexes keep rising, psychologically humans aren't doing well. Many philosophers and psychologists have attempted to shed light on the ways to deal with this predicament, with Jung being the one that has offered the most intriguing one. Every person has a shadow that is comprised of the darkest facets of one's character, and the way to battle and eventually control the shadow is to encourage the emergence of the heroic element within our psyche. Unfortunately, not all of us can embrace the heroic aspect of our personality and thus we end up in a perennial state of struggle and grievance. As you can imagine, it takes a combination of courage, emotional resilience and tenacity to be ready to navigate within this complex construction that we have assembled. And the interesting part is that due to entropy and due to our proclivity towards growth, complexity increases exponentially. There is no way to avoid that and for better or for worse, the best idea is to make peace with complexity in order to alleviate the frustration that it causes. The word complexity originates from the word complex, which means composed of interconnected parts. The reason I use the etymology of the word complexity is to allow awareness to grow through understanding. I have always been a huge proponent of the systems thinking philosophy and one of my strongest beliefs has always been that confusion is a result of a lack of integration of parts within thinking systems. We become confused because something is missing or because something doesn't feel right. The composition of interconnected parts that gives rise to complexity is not in tune with our awareness and as a result the melody of our world becomes distorted. Humans don't like distortion, or at least we're not programmed to like it. Our role is to become maestros of our part of the world and orchestrate the right composition through an elaborate process of wise selection of distinct elements. We can't really become maestros of the whole world because the whole world is beyond our scope of understanding and the composition becomes too vast. When the composition becomes too vast, it feels like a mismatch of chaotic elements and we end up floating in an ocean of far-fetched possibilities and opportunities. Nobody likes to float aimlessly. Nobody likes to feel lost. This somewhat lengthy but necessary introduction served as a prelude to the challenging question, what should I do with my life? This is a question so common but at the same time so potent that I don't really know how to handle it whenever I need to face it. It is strongly related to complexity and one cannot go about answering it without showcasing a rather basic understanding of how complexity affects almost every decision we have to make. The what should I do with my life question arises usually when complexity has overwhelmed the individual to such a degree that decision making becomes quite arduous even for the simplest events in life. The amount of external stimuli that increases exponentially through technology and through social networks affects our possibilities and also our desires. When we are interconnected with so many agents around the world, we feel that we want everything, even if we don't really possess the capacity to imagine what everything would feel like. I guess that's why everyone is so enamored with the idea of parallel universes. We want so many things that only multiple interconnected versions of ourselves can offer that luxury. 
In this perilous landscape, most of us fail to recognize one paramount detail about human nature. We're quite fallible creatures, and it is this fallibility that we need to reduce in order to make our experience more tolerable and eventually come up with sagacious decisions when it comes to what should I do with my life. In this current point in time, two seem to be the most pertinent rules we need to follow in order to reduce fallibility, to pick our battles wisely and to embrace slowness. When it comes to struggle, you need to be ready to fight it. You need to be ready to actually fight every single actor that is imposing more struggle upon your world. Because struggle in itself is a very abstract notion. What exactly constitutes struggle? Struggle doesn't commence organically. It manifests itself via interaction and conflict with entities that don't share the same interests, needs and belief systems. Every goal you have, every process you try to put in place, every dream you want to materialize is susceptible to hurdles and unpredictable events. The world feels like a huge battlefield and you need to be ready not just to fight, but to fight the right battles. It is a fundamental principle of strategic warfare that each strategist needs to know their strengths and weaknesses in order to understand their capacity to win. But winning is not just related to fighting, but also knowing when to fight and whom to fight. When people embark on endeavors nowadays, most of the time they do so without properly evaluating their strategy. They ask the question, what should I do with my life? And they haven't even taken baby steps towards cultivating more self-awareness and realizing what they're actually capable of. I know people that want elusive things and keep fantasizing about them week after week, month after month, year after year, yet nothing happens. When you create fantasies about future events in your life that keep remaining fantasies, you start to lose touch with reality and you just bolster the delusional aspect of your world. When I meet such people, I tentatively ask them, have you prepared for the battles that you have to face? The look on their face resembles an elegant mixture of confusion, unpreparedness and sometimes even embarrassment. Then I become more adamant and I tell them, don't ask me what should I do with my life. Just pick your battles and pick them wisely. The French philosopher Alain Badiou introduced back in 1988 in his magnus opus Being an Event the philosophical notion of the term event. According to Badiou, an event is an unpredictable break in our everyday worlds that opens new possibilities. What an event does is that it serves as a rapture in being through which the individual finds realization and reconciliation with truth. In order, however, for this rapture to manifest itself and have an impact on the constitution of the individual, being there is not enough. The individual needs to achieve oneness with the event itself. This philosophy accounts for all sorts of events, but the way I interpret it is that it serves as an allusion to depth and slowness. Famous physicist and philosopher Richard Feynman used to say that everything can become interesting if you go into it deeply enough. That kind of thinking and way of life can emerge organically in the fast-paced world we have created. It requires taking a step back and realizing that the only way to enact control over the processes that we decide to internalize is to slow down and take our time, even if the whole world tells us otherwise. Through slowness and depth emerges a new way of being. One where the notion of time and experience is re-engineered through the prism of meticulous introspection and observation of our existence. 
Not necessarily one that leads to overanalysis and results in further paralysis, but one where slow thought creates its own time and space and hedges the individual from most calamities that mindless living can beget. With slowness and depth, one can be always ready and use whatever tools are in place at any given time. Italians have a nice name for this, arrangiarsi, meaning making do or getting by. It is the art of improvisation, a way of using the resources at hand to forge solutions. With such a mindset, you no longer need to ask, what should I do with my life? You are just ready to, quote-unquote, do whatever life throws at you. Life can be difficult, I know. But how often do we ponder our responsibility in the hardships that we encounter? How often do we just pause and reflect on what is our role and how serendipity enforces happenstances upon our experience? We can't just float aimlessly and expect life to make sense. That's why we sometimes need rules. Even just two rules for life can make a big difference. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed today's video. If you did, make sure to like, subscribe, turn on notifications and comment below something cool please so that more people can discover it. Uh, if you want to watch more videos from my channel, check out this one and this one. Take care, see you soon. Adrian out. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of ten thousand things. Ever desireless, one can see the mystery. Ever desiring, one sees the manifestations. These two spring from the same source, but differ in name. This appears as darkness. Darkness within darkness. The gate to all mystery. Under heaven, all can see beauty as beauty, only because there is ugliness. All can know good as good, only because there is evil. Therefore, having and not having arise together. Difficult and easy complement each other. Long and short contrast each other. High and low rest upon each other. Voice and sound harmonize each other. Front and back follow one another. Therefore the sage goes about doing nothing, teaching no talking. The ten thousand things rise and fall without cease, creating yet not possessing, working yet not taking credit. Work is done, then forgotten. Therefore, it lasts forever. Not exalting the gifted prevents quarreling. Not collecting treasures prevents stealing. Not seeing desirable things prevents confusion of the heart. The wise, therefore, rule by emptying hearts and stuffing bellies, by weakening ambitions and strengthening bones. If men lack knowledge and desire, then clever people will not try to interfere. If nothing is done, 
then all will be well. The Tao is an empty vessel. It is used but never filled. O oh, unfathomable source of ten thousand things, blunt the sharpness, untangle the knot, soften the glare, merge with dust. O oh, hidden deep, but ever-present, I do not know from whence it comes. It is the forefather of the gods. Heaven and earth are impartial. They see the ten thousand things as straw dogs. The wise are impartial. They see the people as straw dogs. The space between heaven and earth is like a bellows. The shape changes, but not the form. The more it moves, the more it yields. More words count less. Hold fast to the center. The valley spirit never dies. It is the woman, primal mother. Her gateway is the root of heaven and earth. It is like a veil barely seen. Use it. It will never fail. Heaven and earth last forever. Why do heaven and earth last forever? They are unborn, so ever living. The sage stays behind, thus he is ahead. He is detached, thus at one with all. Through selfless action, he attains fulfillment. The highest good is like water. Water gives life to the ten thousand things and does not strive. It flows in places men reject, and so is like the Tao. In dwelling, be close to the land. In meditation, go deep in the heart. In dealing with others, be gentle and kind. In speech, be true. In ruling, be just. In daily life, be competent. In action, be aware of the time and the season. No fight, no blame. Better stop short than fill to the brim. Over-sharpen the blade, and the edge will soon blunt. Amass a store of gold and jade, and no one can protect it. Claim wealth and titles, and disaster will follow. Retire when the work is done. This is the way of heaven. Carrying body and soul and embracing the one, can you avoid separation? Attending fully and becoming supple, can you be as a newborn babe? Washing and cleansing the primal vision, can you be without stain? Loving all men and ruling the country, can you be without cleverness? Opening and closing the gates of heaven, can you play the role of woman? Understanding and being open to all things, are you able to do nothing?
giving birth and nourishing, bearing, yet not possessing, working, yet not taking credit, leading, yet not dominating. This is the primal virtue. Thirty spokes share the wheel's hub. It is the center hole that makes it useful. Shape clay into a vessel. It is the space within that makes it useful. Cut doors and windows for a room. It is the holes which make it useful. Therefore, benefit comes from what is there. Usefulness from what is not there. The 81 short chapters known as the Tao Te Ching have been translated more often than any other book in the world with the single exception of the Bible. Like the Bible, the Tao Te Ching is a book whose appeal is as broad as its meaning is deep. It speaks to each of us at our own level of understanding while inviting us to search for levels of insight and experience that are not yet within our comprehension. As with every text that deserves to be called sacred, it is a half-silvered mirror. To read it is not only to see ourselves as we are, but to glimpse a greatness extending far beyond our knowledge of ourselves and the universe we live in. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. These words are among the most famous in all the literature of the world. They were first offered, however, not to modern Western people like ourselves, who, approaching the 21st century, are ready to admit that we have given too much place to discursive thought and rationalism. They were spoken some 2,500 years ago to a people and in a place, ancient China, far, far removed from us. Any work of art that communicates so enduringly over such enormous reaches of time and cultural diversity addresses, we may be sure, the essence of human nature and the human condition, rather than socio-cultural aspects that are peculiar to this or that society. The Tao Te Ching deals with what is permanent in us. It speaks of a possible inner greatness and an equally possible inner failure, which are both indelibly written into our very structure as human beings. Under its gaze we are not American or Chinese or European. We are that being, man, uniquely called to occupy a precise place in the cosmic order, no matter where or in what era we live. The Tao Te Ching is thus a work of metaphysical psychology, taking us far beyond the social or biological factors that have been the main concern of modern psychology. It helps us to see how the fundamental forces of the cosmos itself are mirrored in our own individual inner structure, and it invites us to try to live in direct relationship to all these forces. To see truly and to live fully, this is what it means to be authentically human. But it is extremely challenging and this challenge was apparently as difficult for the men and women of ancient China as it is for us. We, too, try in vain to live full lives without understanding what it means to see. 
we too presume to act, to do, to create, without opening ourselves to a vision of ultimate reality. This opening and the way to experience it are what the Tao Te Ching is about. Historical information about the text and its author is scant and cloaked in legend. Even the little information we have is at every point subject to dispute by scholars. Although many are willing to accept that Lao Tzu was a real person born in what is now known as the Honan province in China some six centuries before the Christian era. Tradition has it that Confucius once journeyed to see Lao Tzu and came away amazed and in awe of the man. According to the tale, Confucius described his meeting with Lao Tzu in the following way. I know a bird can fly, a fish can swim, an animal can run. For that which runs, a net can be made. For that which swims, a line can be made. For that which flies, a corded arrow can be made. But the dragon's ascent into heaven on the wind and the clouds is something which is beyond my knowledge. Today I have seen Lao Tzu, and he is a dragon. The tale also tells that Lao Tzu was the keeper of the imperial archives at the ancient capital of Luoyang. Seeing the imminent decay of the society he lived in, he resolved to ride away alone into the desert, but at the Hanku Pass he was stopped by a gatekeeper named Yin Shi, who knew of his reputation for wisdom and who begged him to set down in writing the essence of his teaching. Thus, the legend tells us, the Tao Te Ching came into being. Legend aside, there is no doubt about the immense importance of this text in the history of China and the Orient. The figure of Lao Tzu and his writings are revered by followers of the Taoist religion, and the message of the Tao Te Ching has been one of the major underlying influences in Chinese thought and culture for more than 2,000 years. Throughout the world, when one thinks of the greatest spiritual figures in the history of mankind, Lao Tzu is placed alongside Christ, Gautama Buddha, Moses, and Muhammad. Some remarks about the language of this work may be of help at this point. The word Tao has been characterized as untranslatable by nearly every modern scholar. But this statement should not lead us to imagine that the meaning of the Tao was any more easily understood by the contemporaries of Lao Tzu. It would be more to the point to say, only half-jokingly, that the word Tao and even the whole of the Tao Te Ching is not readily translatable into any language, including Chinese. My words are easy to understand and easy to perform, wrote Lao Tzu, yet no man under heaven knows them or practices them. The present translation generally leaves the word Tao in Chinese. Those who have sought an equivalent in Western languages have almost invariably settled on way or path. Metaphysically, the term Tao refers to the way things are. Psychologically, it refers to the way human nature is constituted, the deep, dynamic structure of our being. Ethically, it means the way human beings must conduct themselves with others. Spiritually, it refers to the guidance that is offered to us, the methods of searching for the truth, 
that have been handed down by the great sages of the past, the way of inner work. Yet all these meanings of Tao are ultimately one. In this work, we are offered a vision that relates the flowing structure of the universe to the structure of our individual nature, both in itself and as it manifests itself in the details of our everyday actions in the world. No linguistic or philosophic analysis of this word can ever capture its essential meaning, because what is being referred to is an experience that can only be understood at the moment it is tasted with the whole of our being, simultaneously sensed, felt, and thought. And because this way of experiencing is entirely different from the way almost all of us act and think and feel in our usual lives. To say that the realization of metaphysical truth lies in the opposite direction from the way we usually experience our lives is not to say that a different method of thinking or experiencing is required. What is at issue is nothing less than the activation of an entirely new power within us, an entirely new movement of consciousness. The point is that man is built to receive, contain, and transform this power, and then to make his life a complete expression of it. Nothing else can bring ultimate fulfillment into human life, and yet our lives are lived with little awareness or contact with this force of consciousness. We work, we love, we struggle, we eat, sleep, and dream. We write books and create art. We even worship our gods, closed off from it. This is why every sacred teaching in the history of mankind begins as a revolution, incomprehensible, paradoxical, mysterious. Whether it be the gnomic teaching of Lao Tzu, whoever he was and if he was, or the profoundly troubling doctrine of unknowing brought by Socrates, or the exalted hidden God speaking through Moses and the prophets of Israel, or the shattering sacrifice of love transmitted by Jesus, every sacred teaching remains sacred only as long as it opens a path that has never before been opened and yet always exists and must always exist for humanity. Look, it cannot be seen, it is beyond form. Listen, it cannot be heard, it is beyond sound. Grasp, it cannot be held, it is intangible. It is called indefinable and beyond imagination. Stand before it and there is no beginning. Follow it and there is no end. Stay with the ancient Tao. Move with the present. Of equal importance in approaching this text, and the life it calls us to, is the word de. This word directs our attention to the question of the expression or manifestation in our day-to-day -day lives of the supreme reality. The present text, following numerous other translations, renders de by the English word virtue. But we must be careful not to bring our ordinary moralistic associations to this term. It is true that the word de introduces us to the ethical dimension of this teaching, but this is ethics 
that is solidly rooted in metaphysics and completely separate from ethics considered as the rules of social morality which vary from culture to culture, epoch to epoch, nation to nation, class to class. De refers to nothing less than the quality of human action that allows the central creative power of the universe to manifest through it. As Lao Tzu writes, Something mysteriously formed, born before heaven and earth, in the silence and the void, standing alone and unchanging, ever-present and in motion. Perhaps it is the mother of ten thousand things. I do not know its name. Call it thou. For lack of a better word, I call it great. Being great, it flows. It flows far away. Having gone far, it returns. The picture before us is of a cosmic force or principle that expands or flows outward, or, more precisely perhaps, descends into the creation of the universe, the ten thousand things. Together with this, we are told of a force or movement of return. All of creation returns to the source, but the initial coming into being of creation is to be understood as a receiving of that which flows downward and outward from the center. Every created entity ultimately is what it is and does what it does owing to its specific reception of the energy radiating from the ultimate formless reality. This movement from the nameless source to the ten thousand things is death. And the unique being, man, called here the king, is created to receive this force consciously and is called to allow his actions to manifest that force. Such conscious receiving in human life is virtue. Thus, the movement that leads back toward the source is also the opening toward great action in outer life. Virtue is an opening rather than a doing. In sum, Lao Tzu distinguished human virtue from what we ordinarily consider moral action by the cosmic nature of the force that human virtue manifests. Great action for Lao Tzu is action that conducts the highest and subtlest conscious energy. Ordinary moral action is, on the contrary, a manifestation whose source is lower down in the vast chain of being as it is portrayed in chapter 25. Tao, heaven, earth, the king, or man. The ego, our ordinary initiator of action, is an ephemeral construction which is formed by factors operating far beneath the level of the source, and which, in the unenlightened state of awareness, represents a kind of blockage or impediment to the interplay of fundamental cosmic forces. In other words, because of our identification of ourselves with the ego, what we ordinarily call action or doing, in fact, cuts us off from the complete reception of conscious energy in our bodies and actions. This idea must inevitably sound revolutionary, overthrowing the value we place on socially constructed systems of morality and efficiency. For the point is not only what we do, 
but the source from which we do it. The metaphysical nature of that source determines the ethical, cognitive, and pragmatic value of all human action, that is, the goodness, truth, and practicality of what we do in our life on earth. Our primary and perhaps only true responsibility is to become individuals who are also conduits for the supreme creative power of the universe. All other responsibilities for knowing the truth, for feeling the good, and for accomplishing what is useful and effective must flow from this in our external world, in our day-to-day -day lives, and within the recesses of our psychological makeup. In the ancient traditions of the West, this idea has been known as the doctrine of man as microcosm. In Christian and Jewish mysticism, in the philosophy of Plato and the Hermetic tradition, in Islamic esotericism, we find this idea pouring forth in an endless symphony of symbolic forms and profoundly articulated ideas. In the Tao Te Ching, it is offered to us as a whisper. Thus, respect of Tao and honor of virtue are not demanded, but they are in the nature of things. Therefore, all things arise from Tao. By virtue they are nourished, developed, cared for, sheltered, comforted, grown, and protected. Creating without claiming, doing without taking credit, guiding without interfering, this is primal virtue. We are now in a position to consider what for many of us is the most compelling aspect of the Tao Te Ching, namely the putting into practice of its teaching. The metaphysical doctrine now stands before us in outline, an unformed, ungraspable, pure conscious principle lies at the heart and origin of all things. It is referred to as the Tao. This principle moves, expands, descends into form, creating the hierarchically, organically ordered cascade of worlds and phenomena called the Ten Thousand Things, or simply the Great Universe. And this movement, especially as it can move through humanity, is called De, virtue. At the same time, there is a great tide of return to the source, back toward the undifferentiated, pure reality of the uncarved block. This movement is also termed Tao. Finally, the supreme whole comprised of both movements is also given the designation Tao. Man is built to be an individual incarnation of this whole. His good, his happiness, the very meaning of his life, is to live in correspondence and relationship to the whole, to be and act precisely as the universe itself is and moves. The question before us now is, how? The Tao Te Ching offers a powerful and practical answer, describing in almost every chapter this way of living, also known as Tao, the way. The secret of living, according to the Tao Te Ching, is to open within ourselves to the great flow of fundamental forces that constitute the ultimate nature of the universe, both the movement that descends from the source and the movement of return. 
Thus Lao Tzu writes, Empty yourself of everything. Let the mind become still. The ten thousand things rise and fall while the self watches their return. They grow and flourish and then return to the source. Returning to the source is stillness, which is the way of nature. Expressions like this show us why the Tao Te Ching has assumed such great popularity at the present moment. There is a widely shared realization that modern man has arrogantly and foolishly believed in science, a product largely of the intellect alone and not of the whole man, as an instrument for imposing his will upon nature. And, in the relationships among peoples, Europeans and Americans have often assumed the right to impose their values and desires upon peoples whose lives have not yet based themselves on the technological applications of science. As for Western religion, the Judeo-Christian tradition has sometimes been perceived, rightly or wrongly, as supporting this general tendency in the psychological sphere, especially insofar as it presents a fierce moral demand a commandment that the individual override his own instinctive emotional nature and conform his life to standards that suffocate the vital forces within the body and the heart of every human being. There is nothing new in this reaction against what is perceived as the tyranny of an intellectualist and puritanical value system. Our culture heard it in the early criticism of the Industrial Revolution, in the work of Blake, Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard, and Nietzsche, to name only a few. The first half of the 20th century has seen aspects of it in the psychoanalytic movement, which sought to open our awareness to the forces of organic nature within us, and in the writings of the existentialists, who called for the recognition of a radical inner freedom unfixed and undetermined by any laws, cosmic or societal. Finally, in recent years, we have witnessed the growing interest in mysticism and Eastern religion, which, despite some highly publicized bizarre concomitants, has introduced powerful new ideas into the currents of Western thought. Chief among them, perhaps, is the idea of the states of human consciousness and the suggestion that the whole of our lives, individually and collectively, proceeds in a diminished state of consciousness, far from the capacities that would be possible were we to live at the level of consciousness that is natural to us. It is this last claim that can sound a truly new note for most people, and that provides the context in which the Tao Te Ching can speak in a stunning, fresh way about the practical question of how to search and how to live. Once the immensity of the idea of levels of consciousness is felt, the message of the Tao Te Ching soars beyond social and philosophical criticism of our culture. We find ourselves in front of a teaching about nature and naturalness that compels us to see even our very legitimate current concerns about the environment and our planet in a way that is far more immediate and at the same time far more inclusive than we might ever have imagined. 
and we shall see that the same holds true for other urgent issues of our time, including the problem of war, the crisis of leadership, and the man-woman relationship. To understand the practical importance of the idea of nature and naturalness contained in the Tao Te Ching, there is perhaps no better place to start than with the phrase that has become such a part of our contemporary vocabulary that it has assumed the status of a cliché and even a joke, to go with the flow. Do these words in their popular use mean the same thing as living according to the Tao? Certainly not. The distortions of this phrase that have become popular suggest an unthinking passivity along with a naive trust in the flow of outer events. But it is also a distortion to equate the ideal of living in accord with the Tao with simply obeying one's inner emotional and physical desires, as well as one's hidden intellectual prejudices. The point here is well illustrated by an exchange between the Zen master Shunryu Suzuki and his American pupils. Suzuki Roshi says, There is a big misunderstanding about the idea of naturalness. Most people who come to us believe in some freedom or naturalness, but their understanding is what we call Jinen Ken Gedo, or heretical naturalness, a kind of let-alone policy or sloppiness. For a plant or stone, to be natural is no problem. But for us there is some problem, indeed a big problem. To be natural is something we must work on. Suzuki's further comments lead us to consider the ideas of non-being, wu, and non-action, wu-wei, which are central to the practical teaching of the Tao Te Ching. He goes on to speak of Niu Nan Shin, a smooth, natural mind. When you have that, he says, you have the joy of life. When you lose it, you lose everything. You have nothing. Although you think you have something, you have nothing. But when all you do comes out of nothingness, then you have everything. This is what we mean by naturalness. Or, in the words of Lao Tzu, Tao abides in non-action, yet nothing is left undone. If kings and lords observed this, the ten thousand things would develop naturally. If they still desired to act, they would return to the simplicity of formless substance. To be natural, therefore, is not easy. Inwardly, it involves a state of openness or receptivity that is subtle, elusive, and active. It means becoming aware of that supreme creative power which, as has been said, human beings were created to contain and express. Or, from another angle, one might equally say that to be natural is easy, but we have become such unnatural beings that to open to this force is the most difficult thing in the world. It requires of us an effort that is wholly unlike anything we understand as effort, even including what is ordinarily called relaxation. Similarly, our understanding of nature as an external reality invites reconsideration. Our perception of nature is relative to the quality of mind or attention 
that serves as our instrument of cognition. We see only things, entities, events. We do not directly experience the forces and laws that govern nature and the cosmos. In the words of Lao Tzu, Ever desireless, one can see the mystery. Ever desiring, one sees the manifestations. Let us note, a mind governed by desires can perceive only the world of appearances. What exists behind these appearances can be known only by the mind that exists behind the desires in ourselves. Let us further note, just as the universe contains the ten thousand things, creatures, worlds, stars, stones, so does our mind contain its own ten thousand things, namely desires, impulses, fears, and sensations, and the thoughts, logically connected or not, that serve them. Thus a mind that is full of content knows a universe that is full of things. To go behind the apparent universe requires that we go behind the apparent mind. This may be called opening to non-being. At the same time, what Lao Tzu called non-being is a force of irresistible ultimate power. It is most certainly not nothing in the usual sense of that word, nor is it existence in the usual sense of the word. Similarly for ourselves, what lies beneath the glittering surface of our mind or ordinary sense of self are not simply other fabulous things, such as the psychological black holes that modern psychology has revealed to us under the designation of the unconscious. What lies behind the ten thousand things, or, to use Western language, behind the appearances in ourselves and in the universe, is not another world, another thing or collection of things, not new stars, planets, or black holes, not new desires, sensations, or insights. What lies behind the ten thousand things is the awareness of the ten thousand things. What lies behind the ego is the awareness of the ego. But this awareness, what is it? We cannot say. Call it Tao. The other world, the real world out there and in here, is simply this world, illumined with the inconceivably powerful and subtle energy of consciousness, which we perhaps are beginning to recognize as love itself. Love. Our Western civilization has always needed that word, and no doubt still needs it. Speaking against those who would reduce the great Judaic revelation to a system of formal commandments, external demands, and legalistic rulings, the prophets of Israel arose as the hidden voice of conscience conducting the message of inwardness to the feelings of a nation. The shock of the prophetic voice was continually covered over by fear and egoism and the thinking that served these weaknesses. My thoughts are not your thoughts, God tells Israel through the prophet Isaiah. I hate, I despise your feast days, God tells Israel through Amos. Again and again God calls on Israel 
to open inwardly to the ultimate mystery that sends its love continuously toward humanity and through humanity to the world we are meant to live in, what we call Earth. And throughout centuries, what we clumsily call Jewish mysticism speaks only of the need for humanity to receive, to open, to become like a woman toward the fatherhood of the ultimate mystery. The word Kabbalah literally means the receiving. Following the great line of prophets, there then appeared another prophet, or was he more than a prophet? Again, but with the unfathomable newness, gentleness, and power of the highest energy, the message of love is given. And a life is lived, a death is lived on the cross, the shattering reverberations of which are still unfolding in our world. A sacrifice is offered, a gift is given, and humanity is confronted with the grievous truth that we are unable to accept that gift. We must work and struggle with a kind of effort totally new and unknown to receive the gift in the tissues of our being. We must set aside all that tense doing we call action. We must become female, just as creation itself arises as the mother of the ten thousand things. The nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of ten thousand things. Female is all that receives and brings to birth. We are built to receive all the energies of creation in our consciousness, and through the mysterious activity of watchful silence, to allow them to gestate and unfold in the fullness of time. A great country, writes Lao Tzu, is like low land. It is the meeting ground of the universe, the mother of the universe. The female overcomes the male with stillness, lying low in stillness. Lao Tzu's teaching about the female is bound to be of great interest in contemporary culture. However, there is no question here of direct application to any social or political issue having to do with the rights of women. It is purely and solely a question of the nature of humanness itself. What is a human being anterior to the division into man and woman? The point is that a human being can only act, that is, move outward, in a manner that is specifically human to the extent that he or she can receive the gift of energy being poured out from the source. We are destined to be beings in which the primal two are in conscious, harmonious relationship. We are beings of two movements. It is our exalted but immensely difficult task to find the sensitivity and openness that is the great movement of return designated by the word silence at the same time that we function outwardly, think, play, fight, and create in the rough and tumble vortex of life on earth. The male moves out. The female returns. The male speaks. The female is silent. The male knows. The female is that is to say, our speech must be rooted in silence. 
Our movement must be permeated by stillness. Thus Lao Tzu, carrying body and soul and embracing the one, can you avoid separation? Opening and closing the gates of heaven, can you play the role of woman? There is a tendency in some contemporary scholarship to offer modernistic psychological and political reasons for the prejudice against women in the history of religion and culture throughout the world. No doubt these speculations are valid in many cases and at their level. But insofar as the female designates a universal metaphysical energy, a movement of opening and return, it is simply inevitable that the female becomes that which is forgotten, that which is not understood. Inevitable, that is, granted the fallen nature of humanity, our disconnection from the authentic possibilities of our life. In the ancient Chinese idea of yin and yang, yin is associated with ideas of the female as darkness, death, dissolution, everything that is complementary to yang as male, bright, creational, outpouring. No greater mistake can be made than to equate the female with mere emotions or so-called intuitions. The emotional function in unenlightened men and women, in us, is as little open to the higher as the actional function in unenlightened individuals is an outward expression of the higher creative energy. The creation pours down in light and in accordance with rigorous laws of unfolding. It is uncompromising in its action, and it does not care for things in a manner that follows our limited and egoistically fantastic standards. Baltza writes, Heaven and earth are impartial. They see the ten thousand things as straw dogs. Similarly, no greater mistake can be made than to equate the male, the positive active force of the cosmos, with mere thinking or so-called rationality. Thus yin accords as little with historically conditioned concepts of the feminine as yang accords with historically conditioned concepts of the masculine. Seen in this way, both the male and the female force are hidden from us in our unenlightened state of consciousness. It requires a precise practice of meditation to become aware of energies as such and to observe for oneself the laws of their interaction and unfolding movement. This inner practice reveals that all phenomena everywhere depend upon the harmonious relationship of these forces called yin and yang, female and male, return and expression. To be fully human is to develop a power of attention that allows this relationship to take place within one's own psychophysical organism. A man in whom this attention is highly developed is called a sage, an enlightened human being, although here too there are levels and degrees of inner attainment. As has been suggested, the study that leads to the emergence of this consciousness within ourselves is known as the path, Tao understood as the way of inner spiritual practice. We have just introduced the term meditation. 
Setting aside most contemporary meanings of this word, we may characterize meditation as the process of becoming familiar with one's own real structure as a human being. Certain definite conditions such as physical posture and mental attitude have in every spiritual tradition been presented as necessary supports for this process. The Tao Te Ching does not offer this kind of advice apart from the mental attitude so powerfully communicated by the text. In fact, the most important features of the technical aspect of meditation can never be written down. The practice of meditation requires direct personal guidance of an exceedingly delicate sort, and as such constitutes a central aspect of the vast and all-important element of spiritual discipline known as the oral transmission. All effective spiritual transmission ultimately takes place directly between people. It can never be learned from a book. But important general and theoretical aspects of the practice can be expressed in words and images, and so, returning to the point at hand, we can say that one of the first truths discovered in the practice of meditation is that the movement of return, the movement back toward one's central self, is a subtle, elusive, and fleeting experience. It is constantly being overridden by the automatically acting aspects of the outward movement, especially the racing chaos of automatic thoughts. Even more subtle and elusive, yet of cardinal importance, is the experience of both forces together within oneself. The metaphysical symbol of this central experience is the yin-yang diagram as a whole. That experience is the knowledge and incarnation of the Tao considered as the whole of nature and of oneself as the whole. It is not the intention of this commentary to try to say more about such subtle experiences, but to focus on general theoretical aspects and implications. Nor is it the intention to try to introduce the teaching of the Tao Te Ching in the form of a system of philosophy. The chapters of the text are interrelated, but, as with every communication from a higher level of spirituality, the interrelation appears to us as replete with contradictions and disconnected images. There is bound to be confusion in our minds about the meanings of yin and yang, and about which sense of the Tao is being referred to in many of the chapters. We can say, however, that one stage of the work of meditation is to discriminate between the two forces, the movement of return and the movement outward. Another stage presupposing the experience of successive discrimination, is the simultaneous experience of both. A third stage would then be the experience of the moving together into a harmonious relationship of these two forces. That further stages exist there can be no doubt, but it is also certain that we are not in a position to speculate about them. At every stage of the practice, the truth one needs to experience is hidden and dark and bears the marks of death. This is the death of all that has been built up by the automatism of the mind and ego. 
It is the death of forms and the momentary release or appearance of a formless energy. The seeker must allow himself or herself to be the female in relation to that which is waiting to pour itself into the seeker from above, whether it be called truth or the ultimate energy. Thus Lao Tzu, yield and overcome, bend and be straight, empty and be full, wear out and be new, have little and gain, have much and be confused. Know the strength of man, but keep a woman's care. Know the white, but keep the black. Be the valley of the universe, being the valley of the universe, ever true and resourceful, return to the state of the uncarved block. The psychological condition of an individual who seeks in this way to experience both fundamental forces in himself must inevitably appear incomprehensible and even foolish to the unenlightened and to the unenlightened parts of our own minds, which are accustomed, one might even say addicted, to rationality and the imposition of concepts and forms onto the outer and inner life. Lao Tzu writes, But I alone am drifting, not knowing where I am. Like a newborn babe before it learns to smile, I am alone, without a place to go. Others have more than they need, but I alone have nothing. I am a fool, oh yes, I am confused. Other men are clear and bright, but I alone am dim and weak. Other men are sharp and clever, but I alone am dull and stupid. Oh, I drift like the waves of the sea, without direction, like the restless wind. Everyone else is busy, but I alone am aimless and depressed. I am different. I am nourished by the Great Mother. We may now consider the numerous verses of the Tao Te Ching that deal with the question of leadership, political and spiritual. Before citing examples, we need to emphasize the extraordinary difficulty and drama that awaits the individual seeking to embrace the yin and yang within himself. It is not for nothing that in the spiritual language of alchemy, this embrace under the name alchemical marriage, or the divine androgyne, is presented as the culmination of long and difficult work on oneself. It is a question of developing an attention of such strength and sensitivity that two fundamental cosmic forces, which at one level are intrinsically at war with each other, come together under an even greater force of reconciliation. War is transmuted into love. This reference to the language of Western alchemy may help us confront the political and military language that enters into the second part of the Tao Te Ching. Otherwise, it may be hopelessly puzzling that a text which so consistently speaks of gentleness and yielding suddenly begins speaking of warfare, generalship, armies, and military strategy. This aspect of the Tao Te Ching has led some modern interpreters to take it as a blueprint for achieving purposes completely alien to the goal of inner freedom, such as military conquest or even effective business management and sales programs. In any case, the Tao Te Ching does speak of struggle 
and discipline, quite as much as it speaks of non-doing and letting go, as in fact do all the inner disciplines of the great spiritual teachings, East and West. It is an extraordinary task to make conscious contact with the energy that reconciles the two great movements of universal reality at the levels in which they operate within the whole of the human psyche. The exalted vision that has revealed the necessity for this in-between state is surely what lies at the heart of the middle way as it originally took form in the teachings of the Buddha. The same vision informs the esoteric Christianity of Meister Eckhart, the fathers of Byzantine Christianity such as Gregory Palamas and Maximus the Confessor, and the Gnostic texts of early Christianity. It is the vision we find in the Jewish mystical writings known as the Zohar and the stories of the Baal Shem Tov and his spiritual descendants. It is, as was said, the central work of alchemy. It is Arjuna's warfare in the Bhagavad Gita, the spiritual combat of the Philokalia, the Zen Buddhist sword of the mind, the way of the warrior as spoken of by Hakuin. To see the Tao's message as a permissive, passive, self-calming, going with the flow in the way some modern writers have is to make a mere fantasy out of a profound, subtle doctrine that blends into one vision the truth of mercy and the truth of rigor, to use the language of the Kabbalah. To make non-doing into non-struggling is to be an advocate of what has become merely one of the world's great half-truths. It is possible to understand this teaching concerning the in-betweenness of inner freedom as lying at the root of the Western doctrines of moderation and sobriety that we find in the philosophers of ancient Greece and Rome. But when we consider the way this Western idea has come down to us, it too must be seen as a degeneration insofar as it directs us toward a kind of bourgeois metaphysics and psychology. Nothing in excess, as the Greeks and Romans expressed it, cannot at its root mean anything like the existential comfortableness or Puritanism it has come to signify. It must have originally emerged out of the same kind of doctrine we find in the Tao Te Ching and the countless other esoteric spiritual teachings of the world, namely, to struggle for an attention or consciousness that can embrace two opposite forces without being swallowed by either. It means living in the midst of both the forces of outer life and the forces of the mystical return while searching in oneself for the consciousness that is at the root and that stands as the reconciling fulfillment of both these movements. This war is love. This love is war. In the light of these comments, we can now look at what our text tells us about the art of living in the world and especially the practical art of leadership, what Plato spoke of both symbolically and literally as statesmanship. The question is how to live one's daily life in a way that supports and expresses this war of love, this struggle for contact with the transcendently vibrant non-being, emptiness, and formless energy that lies at the heart of the human and the cosmic world. These verses, and those like them in the text, 
tell us something essential about how to govern and how to fight. The historic context of ancient Chinese society, its political strife and social unrest, cannot be ignored. But we must ask ourselves, to what extent do these verses teach us about how to achieve success in the forms by which society enables us to deal with each other? And to what extent do they give us an attitude toward these forms that enables us to seek within while we are compelled to move and act in the social context? To what extent are spiritual principles meant to serve social psychological goals? And to what extent can social activity become the milieu in which we search for that which transcends society? Do we meditate in order to win? Or can we study the laws of pure inner work operating even within the outer battlefield of life? Lao Tzu writes, Therefore the stiff and unbending is the disciple of death. The gentle and yielding is the disciple of life. Thus an army without flexibility never wins a battle. A tree that is unbending is easily broken. The hard and strong will fall. The soft and weak will overcome. In the symbolic language of sacred writing, the outer and the inner are spoken of with images and formulations that embrace the laws of one's own inner world and the great outer world simultaneously. In this language, words such as leader, warrior, king, and sage refer both to an individual in relationship to other people and to a part of oneself in its relationship to other parts that make up one's total inner world. There is or can be a leader in myself, a warrior, king, and sage. There are armies and peoples within myself. There are desires, fears, hopes, needs, there are timid and brave impulses. There are thinkers, dreamers, scoundrels, and madmen within myself. In the Old Testament, these are the people of Israel whom Moses leads out of the state of slavery. These are the people of Plato's Republic whom the philosopher king rules with wisdom and justice. Like the Tao Te Ching, such texts are political in a much vaster and more intimate sense than we may imagine. To be a warrior in the outer life, one must be a warrior in the inner life. To be a king in the outer life, one must be a king in the inner life. To be a sage in the outer life, one must be a sage in the inner life. Thus, when the Tao Te Ching cautions the ruler against imposing concepts of good and evil onto his people. It is also cautioning us against cutting ourselves off from the vital forces within ourselves through attachment to mental or emotional judging of ourselves. To read anything in the Tao Te Ching as merely advice for the outer life is, putting it bluntly, to desecrate it. That is, to pack it into our own store of illusions, the sum total of which has made our individual and collective life on earth a hypnotic sleep 
that could very well end with our eyes still closed. But to read it as applying simultaneously to the outer life and to our own inner life is to feel ourselves invited to a life of searching that will be supported by the strongest and greatest energies in the universe. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. And my website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. Thank you for listening and namaste.